0: Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Karen. I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) It's early for you all to be here. I know your are sleeping habits. <laughs> okay, uh, my sobriety date is September 6, 1989. Um, I recently joined Design for Living because I moved down to the beach. And uh, if you, whoever, I know there's a lot of new hands that were in this room. And if you don't have a home group, please go get one. You might not like that home group, but you'll find that you've come to like that home group because your home group is going to bring you of the spirit. And then I'm going to teach you the things that I learned about a home group that I didn't trust you very well. I didn't believe in you very well. And I certainly wasn't going to listen to what you had to tell me. <laughs> but by coming around, I, uh, I learned that I wanted to be part of something. And my home group would give me an assignment such as greeting you at the door and I hate to touch at the time. My sponsor said, why do you hug like an ironing board? <laughs> I had no idea I hug like an ironing board. If you were my guy, I did it. You know about how that went. But So I, I came to, and that's part of the Step 3 experience, and I, I want to talk about the evidence of uh, made a decision. You know, because it truly is a decision, and has been for me, to deciding to be free. When I first came here, I didn't think it was about that. This decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of anybody but me was a scary proposition. Um, I I come from a world that if you did that, you would be quite vulnerable in every respect, in all parts of your life. I never knew as a kid growing up, the alcoholic parents and what came in that door. So you want me to do what? However, we heard from our speakers before me about how we come here and uh, the position we're in. We're powerless over alcohol, and my life has become unmanageable, meaning I can't manage the outcome. I can no longer produce the outcome I'm looking for. What do I do with that? What do I do with that? And so I, I this step two really became part of my understanding in uh, that I had to seek and believe there was something out there for a person even like me. Um, I didn't think too highly of myself when I got here. I had done some despicable things. I caused a lot of harm. And when I uh, was reviewing that information <laughs> with my sponsor, She was not in her head, you know, and like she understood. She understood the demoralization that we feel when we come here. She was able to connect that and explain to me about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. And most important, brought me to the unmanageability of my spirit. That I was driven by the unmanageability of my spirit. So when I was introduced to this idea of a decision, a decision, a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of something. She asked me, well, what What sounds like a good idea? <laughs> and um, I was like, I don't know. But I started to think about the value proposition of the characteristics of God. I am kind of like that with words. So it was like, who would I do that with? this decision and then and she coincidentally brought in the idea in and for me about god's evidence in my world so i started to wake up without a drink or substance in my hand to you and i would show up at that home group and speakers like you would come in and you told me about the life you found about the enthusiasm you have about your kids are speaking to you that your job's not ticked off, that you actually were able to replace your alcoholic car, that you didn't need five sets of keys, that you stopped losing your groceries, that that you have to keep reminding that you're the worst mother on the street because you kept meeting the bus with alcohol in your Dunkin' Donuts coffee hub. and everyone knew. You talked about that in those home group meetings. You know, you you sent me to... um, be part of you. You know, I went to my first uh, Area 44 convention. I was three weeks sober. And my sponsor came over to me, and she puts this greeter thing on me and leads me to the doors. And I went, you want me to shake hands here? And she's like, yeah. I was like, oh, my God. And then a home group member because I had joined a home group in three weeks because she told me I needed to show I didn't really join it. I was just showing up at it. Came and stood next to me. And there started this incredible uh, relationship I have with Alcoholics Anonymous in all facets. In my recovery, in service, in unity, in the whole triangle. I didn't know that was the triangle. I didn't know what the heck a triangle was. I didn't think really clearly when I got here. I didn't like being the dot in the middle of anything. So you put that's me in the dot. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be a dot. I didn't understand that my defenses, my character defects kept me separated from my life. Kept me apart from being able to jump in. And this decision, this third step decision, is so vital and grows with you as you uncover and discover, and becomes something that I never thought it would be. It it led me to the understanding of my nature as an alcoholic. I truly understand the the level of selfishness that I walked with, how I intimidated you with my arrogance and my intelligence. You know, I'm really smart. You know that, you know. You have to be really smart in here to figure out how to manage your life while you're a drunk and not wanting anyone to know. All of us are very good at that, or we wouldn't be sitting here. You know, uh, I come from a very big family. I have a twin brother. I'm the oldest of seven kids, I grew up in Wisconsin, along Lake Michigan, up and down the lake we went, from town to town. Eight grammar schools, four high schools later, I end up in Mountain Lakes, New Jersey, as a senior in high school. Okay, as a Midwest girl, Catholic upbringing, always wearing a uniform, you can see I really didn't fit in. I have tried to disguise my Midwest twang so you wouldn't know where I'm from. So I would fit in. I learned to wear a mask really well. And this mask, this decision step three, is asking me to take that off. I can only take that off by a follow-up with the inventories, and they're going to talk about that. But we're only going to be able to really understand that that mask has no value here with the truth. I'm making a decision to seek the truth. And I've come to that understanding because I paid attention to the evidence in my life. So I stop drinking, I start going to you, a sponsor finds me. I believe that everybody I meet and who either comes into my life or I'm in theirs, it's a placement for something that we need to show each other. So when women come to me and ask me to take them through the work I, I take them through the work, and God always makes time on my calendar. I find that incredible. They say, "Oh, you're too busy," and I'm like, "Well, it's really not my calendar." But they don't know I believe all that yet. They don't know that I, I don't, I believe that God does not have a clock, that there's no timeline, that there's no calendar, that there's no attachment to that that the time for you and me shows up for you and me. And the information in this love story we call a big book is so vital for me to feel okay. Okay, I'm not talking great, which I do today. But to feel okay, I had to walk through things that were very uncomfortable. And as an as an alcoholic, uncomfortability is not something I wanted to have. You know, I was always trying to find something to fill that hole in the soul. So the decision to seek, the decision to walk through my life, really um, came about on the look back. I didn't realize that's what I was doing. So when Christine, by the way, a year, is that not too cool? I've known her for 17. I like stoked. That decision, um, my troubles, I was brought to this question, well, on your own power, Tell me, how did it turn out? I'm going to ask you that question. On your own power, was your life everything you wanted? Were you getting the results you liked? Were you living in a place of wonder? (laughs) Were, Were your kids in love with you? Did they want to spend time with you? Were you able to show up at work on time? You know, was I able even to make a legal paycheck? Questions, right? Was I the person I wanted to be? Because deep in the heart of every single one of this, us, is the desire to be and do so. You know, and I've got this mind, this alcoholic mind, that needs treatment, that needs to be treated with new ideas, thoughts and attitudes, new emotions. I might interpret what you're saying to me as um, criticism. And all you're trying to do is tell me a new idea. I might be taking what, in what you're saying to me completely incorrectly unless I ask you, can you explain that? I didn't have the courage to have that response. Elenon actually taught me that response. Later on, as I got grounded in the work, um, I, I, I went to Elenon and I listened because my relationships, and I think it was Billy who first said, We're not really good at relationships. Look at this line in step eight. I think that's where you put it. And I went, oh my God, I didn't even know that was there. (laughs) We're not good at relationships. Yet relationships is all I think about. My relationship with you, my relationship with the people in my home group, my relationships with my kids, my relationships with my ex. I really, it's now getting, okay. My relationship with my sordid family. You know, and I have one of them. I have a family entrenched in untreated alcoholism. My mom died from this disease. My dad got sober, but he was a dry drunk. You know, it was painful to watch that. You know, yet I was given an assignment. You show up when summoned. That's not how I looked at it. (laughs) You show up when summoned. When they call, you go. You make sure you got your own transportation. I'm making a decision to seek. And in that decision, years went by. Years went by when I suddenly realized I want a relationship with them. I was able to set aside everything I think I know for an experience with God and me in that relationship because of this decision to seek. So I do want to tell you a story that um, I have learned and one of the most powerful experiences I have had is the connection that step three decision is not the third step prayer. The third step prayer is an affirmation to keep me into that decision. The third step prayer gives me an opportunity to bring the... Resentment of the day <laughs> or the hesitation of the day or the frustration or the glory of the day into that prayer to maintain who I am and what my job is, and that is to be of service or of help so that I, I get to have that transformation of mind, body, and soul so I don't pick up a drink, so I don't get that life back. So, I have that from the head to the heart experience. That's why that prayer is there for me. That prayer, I'm able to take anything into that and say, God, help build with me. It's not for me, it's with me. What's that mean? I've always, and that really took me to a position I always held. It was your job to satisfy me. It, it, you didn't know that, by the way. It was, it was your job to show up in the way I needed you to show up. You didn't know that either. And then I would hold a resentment against you that you didn't do that. I, it was like it's crazy making, but that was the motive of me. I, I didn't know that. that I, this decision to seek involved me. I had to participate in it, right? I had to try things that were uncomfortable. I came here as a victim to circumstances. And my sponsor first took me to the chapter to wives, then she took me to a vision for you, because she told me in this, there's a vision for you that Alcoholics Anonymous has for a person like you. And then we started from the beginning of the book. After delivering my self-help books to her, because I've helped myself too much. And she handed me a big book, a 12 and 12, and a meditation book, and she said, I think we'll begin here. And here's what happened in that one moment. She showed me respect and love, and I was able to respect a human being for the first time ever without a condition, because I really wanted the light in the eyes that she had. I really wanted that for me, and I wanted to be able to be a witness to that to my kids who hated me when I first came here because I destroyed their life. I threw out their abusive father. But they didn't know all that then. My children were 11, 8, and 4 when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not have a relationship with them. They were terrified of me. And today, um, I have nine grandkids. They're all boys, and I have the possibility—I'm waiting for polka dots. I have a possibility of these two beautiful girls coming into my life as as stepdaughters, and I'm just like, wow. Look at that. It was just my birthday, and they all came down here, and we're at the beach, and they took this picture, and I'm looking at them going, there was a time. Nobody? would have done that. You know, and we were able to to have pizza, and we were able to do a very important thing, and that was laugh. I was able to laugh with these littles. That's what I call them. And I was able to um, be with them, exactly who I am. And they know what I do. So with this decision, I've learned another really great tool in that there's three aspects of God. There's the God I'm with, there's the God I turn to, and there's God I bring to you. So these aspects of God became the aspects that I started to look for in the care of my God. You know, what what does that look like? Because in our book, it tells us, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, period. What if, what if I was driven by a hundred forms of God? What the heck will that look like? How could, how could I do that instead? Well, I'm not going to be able to even recognize that without the inventories. But it began a thought. Like, what are those aspects of God? What is, if I am dishonest, and I was extraordinarily dishonest, not by lying directly to you, but not telling you what you wanted to know. And I really did know what that was, but you didn't ask the question. So I did not give you the answer you know how that goes well that was my story so I confused people because if I confused you enough I could probably manipulate the answer I was looking for but I didn't know I was doing that either you know uh, below the level of surface is the operation of my alcoholism and it wants me in any way it can get me today it shows up in hesitation it shows up in areas that just waiting for that little crack you know And I've got to be awake and aware for that. So here's the beginning of awake and aware. I start to practice this. I start to take the position they talk about of not playing God in your life. I was accountable to that statement, not playing God in your life, to my sponsor. She would ask me, I would tell her, and she said, you're doing it again. I'm going, I am. Well, how do we make that right? What could you do differently? And we started this new practice, and thank God for sponsorship and being able to talk my truth. I mean, really tell her the truth, not the truth I thought she wanted to hear. Yeah. You know, because that was always the safest place to be. But little did I know what that was doing to my soul. And then it goes on to say, we have a new employer being all-powerful, right? He provided what we needed, and then there's a big if. And that's a condition, If I stay close to him, perform his works well. So there was, what does that mean? What does perform his works well? And I think my sponsor used to get really frustrated with my gazillion questions. And she just turned to me and really snarky. She said, okay. (laughs) One of those moments. Okay. I said, did you ever consider that it's just being the best version of you that you can be? And so that's what I have looked at God's will for me as, being the best version of me I can be so when it's pointed out that I'm playing God in your life that's not the best version of me I could be and it might be for a variety of reasons so it puts us into inventory so I become less and less and then they give me a bunch of promises and this is the bonus plan for us when making this decision to seek a new life I want a new life I've had it with the way I treated you and where I landed on September 6, 1989 was painful the realization of God's grace at the truth of that moment. I never want to have to look at me as the way I did on that day. Today I understand a lot more. You know, and i made amends in every area of my life. It took 21 years to finish those financial amends, but that day happened, and oh my God, fireworks. <laughs> I've made direct amends to everybody. My sponsor was a firm believer in direct one-on-one amends. And she'd be like, well, did you harm him on the phone? <laughs> did you harm him by mail? <laughs> Get in the car. <laughs> and the answer was, no, I didn't. And she said, well, however it was done is however it needs to be corrected. And I felt the hope in those things, you know, and it tells us, Right before it gives us that third step prayer that um, I felt new power flow in. From this decision, I haven't even taken actions yet, but I felt like I could. You know, I could do this. And I can take the frustration of the day and put it in that third step prayer. It tells me that I'm going to feel peace of mind. And I was like, that's always what I wanted. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop the dual thinking. I couldn't stop my dual actions as a result of my thinking. I was on a roll, and there was no stopping the roll. So I was on board with that idea in step two that there was a solution out there for a person like me. And this is, that is an empowering statement for a person like me. But I needed to try something different. So it tells me that I can face life successfully. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. I become conscious of the presence of a power that I didn't know I had access to. That I could plug into something. That I could stay plugged in and it's only me unplugging from it. It wasn't ever this thing about taking my will back. It's not possible. I have a will. And I have God. So where am I with that? Right? So... The prayer tells us something and brings this prayer in, which is what's going to bring me to a story that I need to tell you about how the evidence of God is the thing, the very thing that keeps me in the decision to continue to seek. So it tells me in this thing that relieved me of the bondage of self, it gives me all of these directions, and I did this to this for a while until I have a good sponsor who kept bringing me back to the evidence, playing in the evidence. Do I want to play in the evidence of what I think the outcome is going to be, or can I possibly consider playing in the outcome of a power that I think I want? And then she would point out some of the ridiculousness of the day, or the confusion of my life as a drunk, or what it was like before I got there. Because she got to know my kids, and she got to know the way I operate, and she got to remind me of losing keys, groceries, kids, jobs, about how I didn't know how to bake a cake sober, how when I got sober I felt stupid and now I don't. Oh, how did that happen? How did it happen that suddenly is walking in your life? So she had me play with the evidence. Like that first day she hands me a notebook and said, I want you to pay attention to your negative thinking. And I filled a notebook in a week. Who knew? So obviously the way I look at things isn't the way things really are. Reality is reality 100% of the time, despite what I think about that statement. So I can do things kicking and screaming, or I can do things. I can, as Peter always says, meet resistance with no resistance. Or I can meet resistance and be resistance. What do I want to be? Do I have it in mind that I want to stay sober for good and for all? I want to stay sober for good and for all, so I keep walking in that evidence. So I had a day, you know, I was doing the deal, showing up. You know, um, my relationship with my kids was improving. Um, I'm I'm still apart from the ex. He wasn't an ex then because I was pretending. I think I could do that. You know, that I have control in that area of my life. And uh, I was five years sober. And um, my son gets really, really sick. And uh, he had... And, and, you know, we're given hints all along the way. Now, if I wasn't sober at the time, I probably wouldn't have paid attention to the thoughts that were coming in. Because they come. They even come when you first put down that drink and make this decision to seek. Suddenly, you have new thoughts, new ideas, new people. You'll be at a meeting, like, God, that's just what I was thinking about. How could that be the topic? You know, and I give many examples. I walk and march in a room, and what's the meeting? Tenth step. Oh, um, I forgot to do that. You know, or I, I, I'm frustrated, because I, I and I've taken back the power. And as, as uh, one of my sponsors used to say, any line, the line of agnosticism is there for you for any moment. But so is your God. Just step back over. You can reset. You can press that reset. And I love props. You can press that reset button. Any time, any moment, just take a breath and go, okay, what is that all about for me? Is it fear? Well, I've learned fear is nothing but my selfish nature wanting exactly what I wanted when I want it. You know, and I'm not patient about not getting what I want. But I've learned to know that it's going to come. So my son got really, really sick, and I had been given information the few days before that occurred. And he woke up on a Monday morning. It was October 17th. It was 1994. He is a uh, freshman in high school. He is um, an, an unbelievable athlete. I come from all that athlete stuff—people, baseball, basketball—and uh, you know the men in my in my family are all over six foot and very ingrained into the sports world. You know, my my den. Of I have five brothers. Always smelled like sneakers. <laughs> Every hallway had equipment. And he'd walk, in the, he'd walk in the kitchen, and I'm sure you get this, and there's a loaf of bread and a gallon of milk, and it's gone in two seconds. And if you didn't work really fast, you didn't get enough food to eat, because they did it. You know, that's what, they, that's what they were, but they still are. And uh, I was talking to, actually, uh, my, my son's birthday today, and I called before it came down here, and he's on his way to a lacrosse tournament with his son, one of his sons. he's five boys that he could never have, they said. He's on his way to a lacrosse tournament, and Mikey said, Grandma, how many goals should I uh, make today? And I said, I don't know, how about a baker's dozen? <laughs> he's like, what's that? <laughs> you know, what do 10-year-olds know, right? Anyway, he's a fabulous athlete, this little one. We'll see his name in the paper, too. I'm sure. So uh, he's really sick, and I get up, and he comes downstairs, and he said, Mom, I just threw up blood. And I'm like... I had a dream that he died that very night. And uh, God gives us the ability to walk through anything. And I believe in medicine and miracles. So I paid attention and I said, okay. So I got my other kids taken care of, and we went to the doctor, and the doctor said, you were just here. And I knew he was, something was wrong. This is October since May, and I thought maybe mono, maybe something, something. And uh, that's not what it was to be. He was in a, a complete renal failure, I found out by the end of that day. And uh, had I not brought him in, he would have died from um, poisoning, uremic poisoning, because that's what was going on for him. And we were in a, in a journey that was to last for the next six months that was terrifying. I didn't know what the word renal meant. I, I mean, I lived in, um, you know, literature and history, and science was not my jam. It just wasn't. I was very bored there. So um, I'm like, I, I come home from... That first night, and I couldn't find my ex-husband. I couldn't find him. He's with his his other girl. You know, he had chosen a path that was also very painful. It's like, why wouldn't you want me? And he didn't. I had chosen sobriety. I had chosen a different life. He didn't want that. Anyway, so. Um, I come home and I'm walking into my house and I remember that we're in my living room I, I sat down and I pulled the big, big book down and the big book down and I'm reading and I'm going, oh my God, this is all about believing in what I can't see. That's exactly what you've asked me to do in this step three, is to believe in what I can't see. To seek a solution in the, just like that moment that I realized something was really wrong with him and acted on it, this decision is telling me the same thing. So um, I took it down and I prayed, and, and the word that came to mind was, God, just give me the wisdom to understand what to do next so I don't make a mistake. Right, They say we can pray for our own as long as it will help somebody else. So I don't make a mistake. And so I prayed for the wisdom. And do you know what happened? I went to the hospital the next day, and I understood everything they were saying. I couldn't repeat it to you, but I understood it. And I was in the solution to help him. The bottom line was that he would be unable to move forward without a, a kidney transplant if they could stabilize him. Because he had a virus, out of nowhere. A virus, sounds like COVID, right? of virus out of nowhere that it was attacking every organ in his body. And they didn't know if he would survive. And this is day two. That kid had just played a football game on Saturday. He was the uh, quarterback for the varsity team. And I'm on Monday, Tuesday, complete renal failure. There's no hope unless we can, this virus runs its course. I'm like, whoa so where does God come into all of this right um, he was attending a Catholic high school and um, I knew them pretty well because he was bad oh my god the trouble with that boy until we found a solution and here's the beginning of a new solution and um, there was a deacon at my church I'm a Catholic girl. I love church. I love all that stuff. I love the ritual. Anybody who doesn't, I'm cool with that, but it was a safe place for me as a little kid. It was a safe place for me today. It was a safe place on my first day of sobriety when I walked into my first meeting, and it felt safe. I feel safe there. I don't feel challenged. I love it. I love everything about it. I love how I feel I can breathe, and it's exactly what happened when I moved down to the beach. I can breathe in churches everywhere and anywhere. And that gave me that, by the way. So, as the day went on, I had had the month before. God plays a setup game with us, by the way. And and it's not life on life's terms, happens, and we can do self will, or I can start to begin this practice of this God's will thing, right? I have a choice in how I deal with life on life's terms. The month, exactly a month before, I I was part of uh, a Matt Talbot retreat group, and um, they had turned that retreat over to me. And I was like, oh, my God, you want me? You want me? And as part of it, they gave me this medallion. I don't know if you can see this, but it's Praying Hands Medallion. And um, they give it to who they pass it on to. And it's from W6, and the way Matt Talbot worked in North Jersey at the time is W-2, the first women's group, came out of Newark and went to the Abbey. And I was part of W-46, part of the Abbey, brought there by W-6. I, I know it gets confusing when they do the Ws. But in that in that transition, they come to me and ask me if I would lead that retreat. And I was like, wow. And it caused a ruckus. I was only five years sober, almost six. And what did I know? Because a lot of people gone there a long time, so there was a lot of that and i remember sitting up in the chapel and i'm like god this is like why and it's just this just this knowingness that happens in your relationship with this decision that you're kind of driven to just say yes and i'd been taught by this time that i don't say yes to anything i'm asked to in alcoholics anonymous unless i can't do it and then i run it by my sponsor to make sure my motives are correct new idea new thought new decision bring it to her she says, yeah, that's a good motive. You know, because I can be that old person in a moment snap notice when I'm threatened, and I know that about me. So I had this medallion. So my son looks at me at his first dialysis treatment, and he said, Mom, can I have that medallion to hold on to? And I said, sure. I'm like, it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, I'll show it to you. It's very worn, because what he did from that Thursday, which was the first dialysis treatment, and he was 14 years old and terrified he's going to die. His friends wouldn't come. My family wouldn't come. Nobody could come. And you know who showed up for us? Alcoholics Anonymous. They weren't afraid to walk in that door and sit with me during a dialysis treatment. They weren't afraid to watch the catheters fall out and give that boy some hope. They weren't afraid to go to McDonald's with his baseball cap on backwards, sitting on a dialysis machine. They'd bring him a McDonald's Happy Meal. And the joy in that boy's face was for you guys. You showed up for me when no one else can No one else can show up for us like you. No matter what you're going through, no matter how you're going through it, no matter how much you have screwed up your life, no matter how much you're in and out of these rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, our job is to keep the table set and welcome them in every single time with dignity, love, and respect. Because it's not their fault that they don't see there's a decision to seek that they don't know that there's a place in the sun for them, sitting in their home group meeting on a Sunday night or a Friday night or a Tuesday morning, whenever it might be. They don't know that their place is here, but they're given that opportunity to do just that. Six months later, he uh, things happen during those six months. I mean, I had sponsees knock on my door at home, and I'm like a wreck. I can't calm down to save my life. And uh, I, I came in here with a pill prescription deal as well, and so I know that has to be really monitored. You know, and they came in one day, and they're dressed as rag dolls, I think. And they say, come on. And I used to say that my prescription for Serenity was Sand Beach Book. Sand Beach Book. So if I could just get to the beach and put my feet in the sand and get a book, I could calm down, because there was something that happened with me in the water. So they show up, and I was up in North Jersey, and there's lakes all over up there, and they take me to a lake, and they had set up a spotlight, a blanket, a beach chair, lunch. this is November. (laughs) And they had, like, a fire pit to pretend it was warm. And there we sat and had Sand Beach Sun book, and we read out of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and we flipped to a story. And the story they flipped to was Keys to the Kingdom. And in this story, in Keys to the Kingdom, is, is is a line. It said, how do I find a prescription for a miracle? And I looked at them, and I said, I guess this is how we find it, right? And we sat there and talked, and then they brought me home. But i got to tell you, it was you guys who helped me help John. So... Things are going on, and things are happening, and we have a few more unbelievable experiences. We have a hypertension crisis that left him with a stroke. We had a situation. I'm sitting in the, um, in the pediatric intensive care, and him in the corner, and um, this other kid sitting next to him who was suffering from the same virus, but his had gone to his heart. These kids were 14 years old. And there's no, we don't have a solution. And he's in the corner, and he's sitting in the corner, and um, all that it says on his chart is end-stage renal disease. And I'm like, I don't even understand this. I just know that my son is sick, and we can't find a solution. And they have him, all this thing wrapped up in foil, and it's dark, and it's really scary. And who walks in to that room? But this priest that gave him first communion, I had met him downstairs in, uh, I don't know, some x-ray thing. And he comes up, and John loved this guy, Father Brendan. And Father Brendan said, hey, what's going on? And I tell him, and he said, well, we're going to pray for him in our church. And he comes back the very next morning, and John's somewhat cognizant, and we talk Father Brendan's here, and Father Brendan asked him a, uh, asked him a question. He says to him, John, do you believe that you're ever going to see again? Do you believe there's hope for you? Same kind of question, and John said, Yeah, I do. And he said, Well, you will then. I didn't know what was about to happen, so he goes back, and next few hours happen. And I have this um doctor coming in, and this doctor is saying, Hey, you know what? Um, if he doesn't get his eyesight back in three days, he probably won't. And, and um, if, if this doesn't happen, but if it does. Happened. He'll see it like this. It's like Picasso. It's like a Picasso appearing on the wall, and it'll first start in black and white. As his focus will come back, and I'm like, okay, I'm watching for it. And so Father Brendan comes back about a couple hours later, and uh, might have been a day later, and he comes back and he says to John, "So how you doing?" And John's like, "Okay," he said, "I don't, I can't see." And uh, Father Brendan said, yeah, we know. And he I hear them talking. I'm on, like, the other side of the curtain. The tears are going down my face. And my sponsor happens to walk in the door at that moment with a cup of coffee and said, come on, let's go for a walk. And I was like, I don't know how to help. You see, coming from where I come from and being the, I always want to help you. I want to help the solution. I want to find the solution. I want to dig for it. I'm going to go to any length with you to get it. And there was no solution in this. Is medicine and miracles. They leave. I walk back in the room, and um, I'm rubbing John's back. He says it's itching, right? I'm rubbing his back, and he says to me, Hey, Mom, you look like a Picasso. He said, Hey, Mom, the floor is checkered. It was like tile, you know, and the whole pediatric ICU unit stops. And we listen, as he described, his eyesight coming back. And I, God, God, I'm telling them, the nurse, go find Father Brendan. So um, Father Brendan comes back, and together we sit. And what did we pray? The prayer of St. Francis. What did Father Brendan bring to us? The same prayer we use when we're seeking. He doesn't know all of this over here. He just was put in our path to bring us to the solution. So he's getting well. He's getting well Er, And he's still got this idea in his head that I cannot go through with this transplant thing, Mom. I can't do that to anybody And I'm like, well, everybody's been tested except the ex, and he couldn't because he was doing drugs. Oh, I was so angry. (laughs) He held it up for two weeks' decision and finally confronted him. He said, yeah. I said, so you lied? And then we think about what an addict does. Jeopardy to everybody in their path. They don't care. There's no consideration of the outcome. I just think of myself, and I thought about how I did that thought of myself first, put my kids in jeopardy, and he can't help it, but I was still mad. So I just go on over to uh, the transplant unit, and I'm talking to the doctor and say, we need to move forward, and I was a perfect match, and I said, I have to tell you something. I'm a recovering alcoholic. He said, did you ever put needles in your arm? And I said, no. He said, thank God. <laughs> but I was a perfect match for my son, and we move forward with doing that. Now, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm terrified. I'd just been to that retreat. I'm telling you what, and John's wearing my medallion, and I really wanted it back. But <laughs> he's wearing it, and he's going to. I mean, dialysis is freaking scary. They wanted me to do it in my home. I couldn't handle it, so we're taking him to these units. And I sit in a room, and, and, and finally they moved him out of the main room into our private room because I wouldn't leave him alone. I said, you know what? He's in there as a kid. You want him to. You want me not to come in because other people are jealous that if somebody's sitting with them, too bad. You know, and many of you know me well enough to know that I'm persistent with an idea. So, we got our own room, and we did that, and we stayed on it. And um, suddenly the day came when we were ready, and on um, March 1st, 1995, and it was Good for, and it was Ash Wednesday. We had new life. And it was a success. And uh, that kidney failed, and then my daughter stepped up. My youngest daughter, who you don't think, listen, you make a decision to seek a good life for you so that you can stay away from a drink or a drug or whatever. You make that decision, and you have no idea of the impact on other people in your life. That ripple effect that happens with that decision for you is miraculous to the family unit. And the kids, and I only have a few minutes, but I can tell you that Megan stepped up, and this is what she said to me. Hey, Mom, I know God didn't drop us off. Take us as far to drop us off. I know I'm a match for my brother. And uh, there we go, kidney number two. And, uh, And then she had trouble getting pregnant. You know, and there's a direct correlation between all that, and I don't need to get into that right now, but there's a direct correlation between doing that stuff. It has to do with the adrenal glands and all that stuff. And when they did it with me, they cut you open from front to back. When they did it with her, it was laparoscopic, so at least they've improved the process. There's a whole lot of story behind all that incredible, miraculous medicine. I met the person, my first sponsor moved to, at the same time when Johnny went into kidney failure, moved to um, North Carolina, right near Duke University. And Duke University is where they did all of this transplant um, research. And uh, her sponsor that she met down there, husband, was a pioneer in kidney transplantation. And he had the opportunity to um, go through several transplants, and he eventually died from polycystic kidney disease. He eventually died, and, but she knew everything about it, and she was angry at his decision to be a pioneer. We went and saw her, because I had to thank her for the sacrifice her and her family made, because I have my son. And we went down and, and we met with her. And my son looked at her and she said, thank you so much for your sacrifice out of his mouth. Alcoholics Anonymous taught us how to be like that. The decision to seek the truth, the decision to be in the truth, no matter what, allowed us to try that on, right? And while we were there, she gets a phone call, and this woman's daughter is in kidney failure, and John has helped her connect the dots. So we never know why these things happen. We just don't know. In the past few weeks, um, I have brought two brothers that are in end-stage alcoholism. I don't know how to help them. Um, my dad's birthday was September 21st, and he died uh, a couple of years ago from Parkinson's. And I had the unbelievable experience of a ninth-step healing. I can't even tell you. I'm not to talk about ninth-step here, but I just can't tell you. But it was about the decision to seek that went to that place. So... Um, Matthew called me and whenever he calls, I look at the phone and go, oh, trouble. You know how... Good, oh. It was 11 o'clock at night. I had just gotten back from... My car was totaled during the last Nor'easter. It was a nightmare with insurance and trying to get a car. I tried to get a car right now. Well, God made one happen and that all worked out and I just gotten home. And uh, the phone rings and, you taught me to pick up the phone no matter what I think about that phone number. I'm looking at it like this, going, Oh man, it's eleven o'clock, there's only gonna be trouble. It's usually money. You know, because we get ourselves that way. And I answer the phone and said, Hey, how you doing? He said, I am gonna die tonight. I need help. So I call my network up and we hooked him up and twenty four hours later he's in treatment in Illinois. It doesn't happen without the desire to show up in life. And in in that 24-hour period, I had him on the phone with me, and he is describing, page 52 in our book, he is describing the bedevilments in his life, and I'm responding out of my mouth with the nine-step promises because that's my experience of the evidence of playing in God's playground and not in alcoholism's playground, and that's what he witnessed in me. That's what he gets to see in me. That's what my kids get to see in me. That's what my family gets to witness in me. That's what hopefully my home group and my sponsees and the people I'm involved in get to see in me. They get to see the power of the power, the only power. Because there is a solution for us, and there is one solution. I pray that we get to be reborn together, because we're a we. It takes a village. I can't do any of this alone. Without reservation. And when I find that reservation, am I unwilling to uncover that reservation? Am I willing to come up to you and say, I'm confused. What's going on? Am I willing to sit with, with you and hear the criticism, and in my head, no, it's not about you. It's exactly how you feel and giving you the floor to be able to speak your truth to me without judgment and criticism—is that an ideal? Yeah, it is. Being a human being, I'm not always like that, but I strive for that. Especially, I got lots of opinions. <laughs> you know, I've got lots of things I'm thinking about. My mind never stops. I'm always like, Ugh. and I gotta like remember powerless over alcohol, selfish and self-centered is the root of my troubles. Where am I today? And given those prayer and meditations, so 3, 10, 11 in my life today is evidence I can play in that playground. I'm not afraid of that playground. Any bully can walk in that playground and I'm good with God. Because you see, we have a partnership. God came to me years ago and he said, hey, I got a deal for you. This is a step three deal. You want to make a decision? to, you know, i got a franchise for you. It's called sobriety. Would you like it? It's free. (sighs) I won't fire you. And I'll promise you this, that you will have all the money you need, the people to support you, the tools that you will need. Are you willing to hop on board? I'm going, maybe, maybe not. (laughs) Which sounds better my way This way, perhaps, maybe, in this partnership. He said, I only have one requirement. Check in with me daily. Think you can do that? And I was like, okay, I'll try. made a decision. I'm going to try that. And it's followed up by, this is how I wake up in the morning. And, And I'll end with this. Dear God, help me set aside everything I think about me for a new experience with you. That way, my will stays in check somewhat. I'm accountable to my day, and most importantly, to God and to you. Thank you for the opportunity of being with you today.